from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA, ISIS still trying to hang on. From what we see, they're starving, they're low on supplies, uh, weapons, and water. It's not looking too good. Their numbers are dwindling. You know, around 1,500. It's probably right now between 1,000 and 1,500. And after a year of silence, ISIS's leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, has emerged to try to save the organization. He hasn't been seen uh, or heard of in, in the last 11 months, and he hasn't been seen for, I believe, around three years. So that's not the sign of a strong leader. So I think he's making one lash, you know, attempt. Colonel Sean Ryan, spokesman for Operation Inherit Resolve, says Baghdadi's trying to keep the organization together because there's a lot of infighting that we're seeing right now between the ISIS fighters. And the final battle for ISIS is looming. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. In today's battle space, situations change rapidly. That's why Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. Inna alhamdulillahi nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nastaghfiruh. I'm JJ Green. After almost a year of silence, on August 22, 2018, ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi released a 55-minute-long audio message admitting the group has been conquered, but extolling his fighters to keep at it. He encouraged them to form an insurgency, much different from the 30 to 40,000-person army that rolled through Syria and Iraq in 2014, brutally killing innocent men, women, and children, taking women and children hostage, making women into sex slaves, beheading journalists and humanitarian workers. It's a far cry from what it used to be, and a lot more than it's going to be if the U.S.-led coalition gets its way. On this episode, we talk with Colonel Sean Ryan about the final battles in the middle Euphrates River as they set up what's most likely to be the end of ISIS in Syria. We started Operation Roundup uh, quite a few months ago, and we went into different phases. Right now, we're in phase three in the lower Euphrates River Valley. We started in the middle Euphrates River Valley in the Dashisha area, and now we're further down south and heading towards Hajin as the last major military operation for the Syrian Democratic Forces. So they're preparing for the offensive right now, uh, going to get underway uh, quite soon. Uh, they have been enabling safe passage of civilians to leave Hajin, uh, which is the last ISIS stronghold there. And uh, 
also ensuring that the ISIS fighters attempting to flee the area are apprehending or apprehended. Um, in the remainder of the northeast Syria area, local internal security forces are securing cities through law enforcement and counter IED activities, which enables civilian stabilization efforts to continue and, of course, prevents the resurgence of ISIS. So that's uh, Syria in a nutshell. In Iraq, uh, the Iraqi security forces are securing the country and, of course, pursuing any ISIS remnants that are ongoing. Uh, there's a lot of desolate and hard-to-govern areas, such as the remote deserts of the Anbar or the mountains in Kirkuk, Diyala, and Salah al-Din. And the ISF continues to locate and identify and destroy any ISIS remnants in those areas. So, so far, uh, ISF has been doing very well. They're collected uh, 50 suspected terrorists and over 500 IDs in this month alone. And uh, they just opened up a very busy road between Erbil and Kirkuk in uh, time for Eid Mubarak, so the folks can go across that road. Uh, so that has helped out a lot as well. So still a lot of work to do, but uh, there is a lot of progress in the area. Colonel, how would you describe the strength of ISIS at this point? Um, one of the things that uh, we engaged with uh, Secretary of Defense James Mattis at the Pentagon yesterday and uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Joseph Dunford about was a report that ISIS possibly has 30,000 fighters or people involved engaged with them and they both doubted that um, that reporting and so do I just based on what I've seen and heard but what do you see? Well that report came out I got asked about that quite a bit as well probably about a week ago and uh, we said from the beginning we thought those numbers were very high um, although it's tough to dispute them because I don't know the methodology used behind those numbers but normally when I get asked uh, what are the ISIS numbers it's usually in the middle Euphrates River Valley and we've been saying from the starts you know around 1500 and I'll continue to say it's probably right now between 1,000 and 1,500. So I can only make an assumption that they were counting uh, fighters, their families, uh, infrastructure, mm. logistic personnel, things of that nature, but it seems uh, like a very high number. Uh, but we're really more concerned about the fighters that we see on the battlefield, and that is our focus. And uh, can you give us or characterize the, the nature of the skill set or a skill level of the fighters that you do see? Are they as highly trained or as well trained as the ones that we saw between 2014 and 2017, if you would call them trained? No, I would say their capabilities are uh, severely constricted at this point. Um, they're still very good at, at IEDs, so that's going to be a major issue for this last phase is uh, the emplacement of, of hundreds of IEDs, which makes uh, the clearing process very slow because you don't want to lose any soldiers from the SDF because of that. So they do have engineering equipment but again that takes time to do so right now we're seeing they're very low in in water and food and uh, ammunition but they still have a pretty good ability to make ied so that's really the main problem right now but we're talking the last remnants of of isis um the diehard ideological folks and probably some foreign terrorist fighters that quite frankly have nowhere else to go uh we've seen that a few of the ISIS fighters have shaved their beards and changed their clothes and try to fit into the 
uh, local populace. If they're from Iraq and Syria, some of them can probably get away with it. But if you're a foreign terrorist fighter, they know you're not from that area. So uh, one of the great things that we've seen is the local residents have been calling either the SDF or the uh, federal police in Iraq and basically telling them that they have some ISIS fighters in the area and they're being picked up that way. What kinds of weapons are they using, aside obviously from the IEDs that they're building, what kind of uh, guns or are they using uh, mortars or do they do they have rockets? Or what beside the IEDs are they using? I mean, they still have some weapons uh, caches. As you just said, they still have the ability to uh, conduct mortar attacks, uh, AK-47, maybe some type of a 50 cal machine gun. So again, we're not fighting a, a ragtag a bunch of guys. And the other thing that uh, a lot of folks don't understand is this is a very deserty area and they've been living underground in former uh, oil company uh, underground shelters that are very well built and you can drive vehicles over them and, and not even know that you drove over a, a tunnel. So they've been using these tunnels to live in for the past couple of months, uh, their industrial size and strength. So again, when we go, when the SDF goes through there, they have to be very methodical and not underestimate the enemy at all because the fight is definitely not over and we're expecting uh, a very uh, hard fight to come. And these are the 1,500 or so you're talking about in the middle Euphrates that are living in these tunnels, et cetera. That is correct. And uh, we've seen some movement. Some of them have tried to get their families out. Some of them, uh, again, there's a lot of discourse with ISIS right now that the locals try to get their families out while the foreign terrorist fighters, again, they have nowhere to go. We're seeing that some of the, the leaders are taking off. They're not only taking off with uh, a lot of money, but they're taking the supplies, some of the supplies with them. So again, there's a lot of uh, infighting that we're seeing because we've picked up some fighters and uh, that's the message that we're getting out of them. But again, you know, we're not underestimating the enemy at all. Uh, we're hoping that uh, the battle goes well, but it's, it's going to be a battle to the end. And that is what we do know. Uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi surfaced last week with um, a, a new message. And um, in that message, it seemed as though he was trying to uh, regroup his, 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 his organization. And he mentioned the word insurgency uh, in, in the process of uh, speaking to his followers and, of course, trying to send a message to the rest of the world. First of all, um, do you get the sense that that is Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi? And secondly, uh, what, uh, what do you come away from the message with? We do believe that that could possibly be him, although we have not got confirmation on that. But we've always said from the get-go that we still believe that he is alive somewhere. Uh, the message he, he put out is is not typical that he normally puts out. He, he did mention that they have been defeated, and I think he's just trying to rally up the, the very hardened ideologists to, to, to stick around and there's going to be better things. But I can tell you, this, this last fight's going to be a, a, a big struggle for them, and we're seeing that uh, it, it's not looking good for them. As far as him, you know, I, I look at it from a leadership aspect, and you he hasn't been seen, I believe, uh, or heard of in, in the last 11 months. And he hasn't been seen for, I believe, around three years. So that's not the sign of a strong leader and not the what we're used to seeing in our military leadership. Uh, so I think he's making one lash you know, attempt 
to keep some of the discourse uh, from not going too bad because there's a lot of infighting that, like I said, that we're seeing right now between the ISIS fighters. So I think he's just trying to uh, give one last-ditch attempt. But again, I'll reiterate, from what we see, they're starving, they're low on supplies, uh, weapons, and water. So uh, it's not looking too good. That's Colonel Sean Ryan, spokesman for Operation Inherent Resolve. And after a short break, we'll return and take a look at what's next as the fight continues, and then what's next after the fight, when we continue with Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability, enabling faster, more assured decisions. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. ISIS is losing fighters rapidly. It has very few left. It has very little ammunition. Weapons are low. Food and water are hard to come by. Now, what's next in the fight to eradicate ISIS from Iraq and Syria? We're talking with Colonel Sean Ryan, spokesman for Operation Inherit Resolve. You've said several times in our conversation today that um, this is going to be a tough fight. Why do you think it's going to be tough considering the small number of fighters that they have, the limited amount of resources that they have, and the, the large presence that they're fighting against? I think if we're going, uh, you know, tit for tat, man, man to man, it, it wouldn't be that difficult. But we're talking about uh, underground tunnels. We're talking about them booby trapping, you know, every corner you you come across, which really slows the progress. And again, we believe these fighters are, are the fighters that will stay to the death. So that is why we, we believe it's still going to be a tough fight. You know, I, I hope it's not, but we definitely don't want to underestimate the enemy and act like we're just going to roll through them uh, right away either. So we're that's what we're seeing. Hopefully it'll go uh, a lot better than I'm describing. But again, I don't want to underestimate anyone at this point. Would you give us a sense of what the coalition looks like now? Sure. I mean, this will be the last major offensive militarily, but we understand, you know, stabilization efforts are just as important and they are ongoing across Iraq and Syria. And it's mainly to prevent the return of the conditions uh, under which ISIS rose in the first place. I can tell you in Iraq, the government's working to improve living conditions across the country. Uh, They're addressing the areas of most need, rebuilding infrastructure damaged by the fight. Uh, by ISIS and against ISIS, and improving access uh, access to the basic necessities such as electricity and water. I can tell you in the Hajjan area itself, uh, these residents there have only known ISIS for the past four years. Their kids haven't gone to school for over five years. They don't get the daily necessities. So it's going to be uh, a great challenge, but it's going to be very rewarding when that area is liberated. And this will be the last liberated area. So, again, we have to start the, the stabilization efforts, and then uh, eventually the reconstruction efforts will begin. But that's not military-based, uh, so we're going to need you know a lot of outside help for that. Uh, but right now we're trying to set the conditions uh, for stabilization so we can get the, 
you know, the people back to their homes. We can get the kids back in school and eventually jobs will come too. But you have to secure the areas first. So that's what we're doing in all the other areas that we've already uh, gone through. Colonel, can you assess where you where you think um, Baghdadi might be now, a general area or range? I know if you knew where he was, he'd be dead or captured. But um, is there some thought that he's still in somewhere between Syria and Iraq? Sure. I mean, we're hoping he's in the Euphrates River Valley, quite frankly, and we hope to stumble across him. He's definitely someone that uh, we're very interested in in taking off the battlefield. But um, I believe as a figure itself, he's he's lost a lot of the luster because, again, as a leader, you just can't show up, you know, once a year and give a an audio statement. Uh, most soldiers need a little bit more than that. So as, as much as it, it's important of, of capturing him, you know, we're really looking at destroying the last remnants of, of ISIS writ large. And, and if we come across him, then we'll definitely deal with him. Um, you know, the, the, the space range, the area where you're dealing with uh, the middle Euphrates, how big is that? It's uh, right now we're probably down to about 200 um, square kilometer area. So but it's it is very vast. It's very deserty. So it does make uh, for difficult terrain. But uh, I believe this uh, Syrian Democratic Forces are up to the challenge and uh, they definitely want to uh, destroy the last remnants of ISIS. I can tell you that. Mm hmm. Uh, are there any other uh, elements or issues you want to bring up um, regarding your mission and your work today uh, that uh, we haven't spoken about that you think is important? Well, you, you mentioned the insurgency, and I don't want to quite call it that yet, but we do see you know, some pockets uh, in Iraq still. And again, you know what? Uh, ISIS is very good at uh, at scaring the the civilians. So so three to ten, you know, terrorists can can actually do a lot of damage. So, you know, we're still helping uh, prepare and train the uh, Iraqi security forces, the coalition forces, and uh, they're aware of this and uh, they're doing everything they can to to make Iraq secure. So there's a lot of good signs. Uh, there's been some stories out there lately about the nightlife in Baghdad and, and things are so much better. Uh, I know the Iraqi government and the Iraqi security forces are, are working hand in hand to extend it past Baghdad so, to where it's all areas of Iraq. And, and that's what we're looking for too. They've been a very good uh, partner to the coalition and uh, we're here at their invitation and uh, we hope that continues. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Uh, it is a great pleasure to talk to you today. Hopefully we can engage on a more regular basis. Feel free to hit me up anytime. That's Colonel Sean Ryan, spokesman for Operation Inherit Resolve. We wanted a bit more context on the situation involving ISIS. And from the Pentagon perspective, we turned to Press Secretary Dana White for a brief question and answer session. It's important to understand with respect to ISIS uh, in the Middle East, that they've lost 98% of the caliphate. Um, there is less than 2% of the land that is still um, infiltrated by ISIS. Our goal is to ensure that we defeat ISIS there and that they cannot come back and they cannot research. But it's also important to understand that ISIS is a global threat. And ISIS exists in Africa. It exists in Southeast Asia. It exists in Europe. It still has its tentacles all over the world. And so we need to confront ISIS wherever it is. 
Does that suggest then that the U.S. military will go wherever ISIS shows up or will go wherever it is deemed that ISIS is a threat to the U.S.? One, we also have to remember that the coalition, there's a coalition to defeat ISIS. Kenya just was just added as a member of the Defeat ISIS coalition. So this is not just a U.S. fight. This is a global fight for a global threat. How would you assess the strength of the organization, uh, the ISIS organization? What are you hearing in terms of numbers of fighters? There was a report that came out recently, and I'm not certain that there's any truth to this or how much there is, suggesting that there may be as many as 30,000 ISIS fighters still available and out there at uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's behest to fight. Are you seeing the same numbers? What I can tell you is that numbers, it's, it's not as simple as that. I will tell you that ISIS has lost access to a lot of foreign fighters because of the destruction of the caliphate. They've lost um, access to resources. Um, but ISIS is also a virtual threat. So when people think about the numbers, are you talking about um, actual fighters on the ground? Are you talking about those who are inspired? Are you talking about those who are sympathetic? So I think we have to be careful um, how we characterize it and just understand that ISIS uh, is still focused on undermining our way of life and killing. That's Pentagon Press Secretary Dana White. ISIS, according to some, may have as many as 20 to 30,000 loyalists inside Syria and Iraq. But as you heard Colonel Sean Ryan say, that likely includes people who are family members, people who may sympathize with ISIS, and people who may be a part of a support network. But it would not be that all of these people are actually fighters for ISIS. And that makes a big difference in ISIS's strength inside Iraq and Syria. And we should also be mindful, ISIS is still active in other countries, especially in Afghanistan. That's it for this episode. Coming up in the next edition of Target USA. On August 23rd, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was about to leave for North Korea to continue discussions on nuclear disarmament when he abruptly canceled the trip because of something North Korea said. There's no excuse for their behavior. Ambassador Joe Detrani is former U.S. Special Envoy for six-party talks with North Korea. Apparently, Washington was fed up with Pyongyang's antics. Nasty notes from your vice foreign minister and that are critical of the United States and our vice president. But apparently, North Korea sent a letter to President Trump that went way overboard. There was a message, reportedly there was a message that came in from uh, Kim Jong-chol, the counterpart of Mike Pompeo that uh, that upset President Donald Trump and uh, he postponed or you know uh, Pompeo's visit to uh, to North Korea. This is this is sort of how North Korea operates. So is North Korea serious about denuclearization? We'll examine it in depth on the next edition of Target USA. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Subscribe to our podcast and also let me know what you think. Send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Target USA is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. In today's battle space, situations change rapidly. 
That's why Northrop Grumman's innovative C4 ISR technology offers unprecedented mission capability. That's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. If you like this show, you need to listen to Spike's Car Radio. Join writer, comedian, and automotive enthusiast Spike Ferriston each Wednesday right here at Podcast One. Spike hangs out with his pals like Jerry O'Connell, Wade Eastwood, and Jerry Seinfeld, and they talk cars. It's a humorous roundtable discussion about the latest car news and advice for new and classic car buyers. So download Spike Show each week right here on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.